0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. <laughs> oh,
0: Open the five-day door, pal. Have we got complete radio content? Hello, how do you read? What's the story? Out. Hi, I'm Adam Volerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. What David Lynch calls Eye of the Duck scenes. An Eye of the Duck is a moment or sequence in a film that defines the whole. Each week on our podcast, we explore a movie by finding the scene at its core. From the earliest
3: days of the medium, filmmakers have transported us beyond Earth's atmosphere. In this mini-series, we'll be charting cinema's greatest space stories, the movies where science fiction, fact, and boundless imagination converge.
0: Welcome to Eye of the Duck, A Space Odyssey. power of the sun in the palm of your hand i've been waiting for you to do that for days i've been like actively avoiding texting that to you in the hopes that you would spontaneously say it on this show i just knew it was coming it didn't enter my mind until we uh logged on to this chat
3: really (laughs) yeah It is not something they say in this movie. (laughs) No, it's
0: from Spider-Man 2. But there are plenty of moments in this film that look like the exact shot of Doc Ock when he is saying that.
3: That's very true. That is very, very true. Uh, I'm beginning to think that the two of us as podcasters and as artists and friends, we don't have... Uh, much subtlety in our in our lives and this film is very similar in that way it has no chill
0: it has no chill um, it has no subtlety
3: no it has
0: ever it has razor scooters which i love it does have a razor scooter very uh <laughs> very mid 2000s of it
3: that is one of the funniest things about this it it's never really established or, or like no one ever talks about these scooters that they ride around the station but they sure do ride Razor scooters around their space station. And I, I love mean, it.
0: <laughs> I was watching the, the BTS and they say that the. So they say, first of all, that the, the bomb, the bomb radius is about the size of the island of Manhattan, right? Which is mm-hmm. very large. And then I'm like wondering, I'm like, oh, wow, well, how big is the ship? And in the BTS, they say the solar shield covering the ship is one mile in diameter that's how large it is so for them to get from you know one end of the ship to the other they need some kind of wheeled vehicle because this isn't star trek where you've got like you know uh the these like crazy elevators (laughs) that go at like you know right uh, instant speed you know they they need to get around so razor scooter at bare minimum is is necessary
3: yeah they need fast fast travel points yeah (laughs) How, how big is the starship enterprise by the way
0: I don't have the uh the numbers off the top not, of my head. Let's 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 take this a quick fast, glance at it? Wikipedia. Now the problem is Dom is that there are numerous starship enterprises. Uh oh, Enterprise, really? yeah, there's there's more than one. The uh the most like I feel like the 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 two most like beloved ones are the the ones that um Captain Kirk pilots in the original series. Mm-hmm. But then the one that like I think a lot of people gravitate towards is the Enterprise D which is the Enterprise ah. from Star Trek the Next Generation. Um so why don't why don't we look at see, see if we can get okay. some some numbers on how large this ship is.
3: And they all they they all are like that disc like with the with this thing coming off
0: (laughs) (laughs) the nacelles uh yeah they're all uh they're all these large uh disc shaped ships with uh with the nacelle sort of engines on the back even in star trek discovery uh which is set at some time after the events of of this series and of, of next gen and is made sort of with uh you know newer fancier tech like even in that there's a point where like trying to say so without spoiling it but like the, I'll, I'll just say that at at least one second of this show you see a glimpse of a distant future and what one of these ships might look like and you know it's got sort of like an energy field holding the nacelles to the main disc but there's oh, no actual cool. uh, there's no actual like you know physical machinery tying it all together anymore um and it looks pretty rad um so how how is this is the enterprise d anywhere
3: near as big as this ship this vessel
0: Wikipedia didn't give it to me immediately, so I'm just going to uh, Google mm. it. And according to um, memory-gamma.fandom.com, uh, mm. the Enterprise D is uh, 641 meters long and weighs five million tons. Mm. Yeah, um, it has 42 decks and uh, has a has a crew of a, a maximum of 15,000 people can can fit on board. And uh, it, it can carry 11 phaser arrays and four photon torpedoes. Beautiful. Yeah. This ship, uh, the Icarus II, uh,
3: is not much of a, of a vessel. It, it is really just this gigantic solar panel with a bomb strapped to it and then just a long tube.
0: Yeah. I mean, right? it's, it's clearly uh, designed for a singular purpose you right, know right. it's not designed for a a five-year mis- mission of uh, exploration and discovery and uh, you know etc it is designed to specifically carry this bomb to the sun
3: yeah and it's a uh, it's a pretty fun place to hang out uh they have <laughs> they have a garden in there that's pretty cool They have they an have oxygen those, garden uh, yeah um, they have a, a room, super cool a room just for viewing the uh the unimaginable power of the sun to pl- uh, it's a place we all love to hang out in. And, and the bomb that is strapped to this vessel is like the Black Lodge or something. It's like this weird, like, liminal
0: space. It's really cool because it's like the, the whole... Like, you can go inside the bomb and operate the bomb from within the bomb if you have to. Um, right. And so it has, like, control panels. But other than that, it is just this massive uh, three-dimensional cube uh, that you can kind of... Physically move around in, and it appears to have its own gravity because you could like fall down one side of it and then go for a stroll on the side you have fallen down. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Suffice it to say there is a lot of science fiction stuff happening in this film, so much that I would assume people who uh study uh, uh, astronomy and and physics and and space are probably enraged by uh the way this this movie treats science uh f- fact versus fiction is that well true?
0: There, there is the uh as with many of the films we've covered for this series there are scientists who are consulting on the project mm-hmm. and and helping to sort of like develop the concepts you see on screen of course like you know the film is narrative first emotion yeah, first yeah. and then then science afterwards but there is like precedent for the uh for the mission being explored here Um, Mm -hmm. I, and I have, I have stuff about that here if you want to talk about it.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think the concept of bombing the sun, that all seems to check out to me, but there are moments where they play extremely fast and loose with, uh, with science fact, I think, in yeah. a way that doesn't bother me. As someone who has said on this series many times, I truly don't care about accuracy in my space <laughs> movies. There are moments when Killian Murphy here is uh, is is viewing the surface of the sun from like I don't know inches away, and somehow is not burst to smithereens but uh well
0: you're talking about like the very very end which goes like <laughs> full abstract and poetic versus you know uh and any you know it's it's no longer grounded in any sense of reality by that point um i just but,
3: imagine watching this as like neil deGrasse tyson and being like what the fuck are they doing this doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> but that's not why we're here
0: no that isn't why we're here um and it's also not why Danny Boyle is here like Danny Boyle isn't here to to uh to just like you know read you a textbook on on physics like so uh, let's backtrack a bit because okay Boyle is is one of Danny Boyle's sunshine yeah Danny Boyle's sunshine Boyle is one of if not my my favorite filmmaker and I think one of the things that I'm so drawn to in his work is that very often he will choose these kind of very large, like high concept ideas, and then just distill it down to what is the, what is the like human drama at, at the heart of this? You know, yes. what it, what is the thing that's like actually going on here? Um, and so... That's why I keep coming back to his films. It's why I keep coming back to a film like Sunshine, even though it is presumably just about this gigantic, like high concept notion of like, what if we had to send a team of scientists into the heart of the sun to blow it up, you know?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's not unlike what we, uh, what we often do on this show is taking these, you know, bizarrely high concept uh, ideas and trying to distill them into their simplest uh, notion. Right. And uh, it makes it a good a good case study, I think, for our show and for our series here. Um, I'm not uh, I'm not like much of an expert on Boyle's filmography. I, I've seen a few of them. I'm starting to get a an idea of like his thing now, which, <laughs> I, and, and which I very much enjoy. And I also enjoy because he seems to have inspired you a lot as a filmmaker, and I can I can see that in your. With in your work and in your personality as a person <laughs> i very much feel like you are one of the characters from this movie
0: yeah uh i don't disagree with you there um <laughs> i also you know like i i don't know that we would there'd be any situation where we cover it on this show but i had an experience with uh with train spotting 2 recently that i like was mm-hmm. not expecting to have uh where i just like i came away from that film being like wow i've just unlocked like the most fucked up like part of my like central trauma and like immediately had to call my therapist and be like nice. okay have you seen train spotting too you need to talk about it.
3: <laughs> only the best films uh uh make you reach those conclusions you know yeah yeah <laughs> you can uh, tell the quality of the film by whether or not your therapist is on speed dial after right <laughs> right
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I should.
3: I think we should also point out that uh, we happen to be covering a uh, boil and sunshine around the same time that uh, our friends at blank check are, are covering the filmmaker and and maybe even the movie <laughs> around the same yeah, time I, I that feel is these purely episodes coincidental at
0: very similar times but yeah that is yeah. purely purely coincidental um yeah. now you get to have two two episodes on sunshine in short proximity and uh i'm in, in favor of that because it will inspire more of you to watch the film and this is a criminally underseen and under discussed movie
3: i think that's a good place to start with this film of uh of of This Icarus, the second Icarus mission, uh, headed to the sun to uh, drop a few nukes into it and kind of create a a star within the star, right? Yeah. Trying to reawaken the sun.
0: Yes, the sun is dying and Earth Mm -hmm. has entered a state of solar winter from which it will not recover. Um, Mm -hmm. All life on Earth is uh, destined to uh, end, uh, to fail and end. And the only way to uh, prevent that is to reawaken the sun by essentially setting off a new Big Bang inside the heart of the sun.
3: Yes. And the year is 2057, so uh, that that is very much within our lifetimes.
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, we'll see. If we make it. <laughs> uh, 34 years from now. <laughs>
3: it's not that far away, really. Nope. And uh, I don't know the the potential of this happening within our lifetimes will is is the sun set to die within our lifetimes i don't think so i sure hope not
0: (laughs) well the the inspiration for the film is garland reading uh reading an article about the eventual death of the sun um, got it which is not scheduled to happen uh within our lifetime but it's but it is an idea that was no, it it, it it there is scientific precedent for this happening. Sure.
3: Yes, I mean it's going to happen eventually. Yeah. That is uh I mean this film is in this space of uh of contradiction, I think. Like of the the, the kind of basic contradiction of being alive and uh being on this tiny little planet that only really exists because of this massive like portal to hell that exists in space right. that is the sun <laughs> just the contradiction of that thing being up there and giving us life but also uh, one day inevitably i mean n- like definitely n- not, taking it not all just, away
0: not just one day inevitably taking it away but like if the earth were really any closer to the sun the conditions on on our planet would be uh such that we couldn't exist here you know it's like we exist we exist in like perfect harmony with this like massively infinite destructive force and it is and 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 do so because of this massive infinite destructive force and it's both destructive because uh it sure is a as i said
3: a, a portal to hell just this big yeah. <laughs> uh, seething fireball that consumes all and uh and is is definitely going to kill us all one day but also it yes it gives us the gift of light it gives us the gift of life right it is right and nothing and could exist without it
0: nothing could exist without it and then of course you know there's the like there's the philosophical stuff and the mythological stuff where it's like the thing that separates humanity from other animals is that like Prometheus reaches up and steals <laughs> fire from the gods. And then, you know, I'm watching an interview with, with a guy on the behind the scenes and he's saying, you know, like, and that fire, you know, like that's, that, that is the sun, you know, like when you, when you like gather firewood from from the forest near your your home and you bring it back to your fireplace, like you're activating you know the power of the sun that's been stored chemically inside these uh this wood and 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 you and you are feeding off of uh you know a captured version of the sun like in your own home and you know there's there's all of this all of this is kind of contained within the uh the strange contradiction uh that we're all facing every day
3: and mythic i think is a great word to describe like the levels that this film aspires towards or, or sort of like fluctuates around because it is this contradictory space of like, there is a basic scientific reality here that the sun is dying. And it's this very basic notion that maybe if we throw a bomb in there, it will uh, wake up again. (laughs) That's just like, I mean, at the end of the day, it it is something that like is not very hard to, to uh, fathom, but on the other end, the sun is so mythic in its power that you can't help, but but just go to like religious places when you, when you start to talk about it. Absolutely. And and I think that is uh, where this film is, is sort of navigating is like, you can only go bigger and bigger when you start to sort of like, look at the sun as, as like a a movie monster, I guess like that. that It's just movie is kind of like, what if, you know, what if, alien but the xenomorph was the the sun (laughs) right
0: (laughs) kind of it's it's just such a wild (laughs) i know you know premise for a for a film and it and it works so well because it does it does evoke all of this like religious stuff of this notion of like okay well the sun looks like hell but it's in the sky so it's heaven and it like gives me life so it's god but it's trying (laughs) to kill me so it's the devil you know it's like all of this stuff all at once um you, it is so just, hard to kind of wrap your head around.
3: Yeah, but you can't not go to that place. If you're going to make a mm-hmm. movie about the power of the sun, like the imagery that he uses here is, is so powerful because he reaches for this sort of like mythic or even like religious kind of imagery of this like all encompassing, unfathomable, unimaginable yeah. power that it, that you know, it, and at the same time, it's just this group of scientists like doing a very sort of, basic mission
0: well not the, basic the stakes are incredibly high um the stakes are high but,
3: but it's it's very easy to understand it's not like right know, one it's of these easy, super high yeah, concepts. it's easy
0: to wrap your head around the mission itself it's easy to wrap your head around the people but you are you just watch all of them react to this sort of truth in different ways and re, and the ways in which they react are uh you kind of understand all of them, <laughs> yeah, like perhaps the exception being pinbacker the uh you know the captain of the the Icarus one who we we meet in the third act um he i mean he' you know essentially is like a religious zealot you know he's he's spent too yes. much time in the orbit of the sun and he's become uh he's you know he worships the sun god Ra <laughs> <laughs> i mean
3: this movie kind of gives you this notion that uh why do we worship anything else? Like when the sun is just up there, like Mm -hmm. it seems so obvious. Like this is the only thing that should matter to any like religious person is this (laughs) thing that is this mythic level of of you know of creation up there you know yeah. gives life and takes it away it is it's up there like you can see it it's not this like mysterious thing that we have to find in you know in 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 writings from people who lived thousands of years ago you can literally just look at this thing and it's so powerful despite being so many miles away that if you look at it for more than like a few seconds, it's gonna fuck up your eyes. I mean, that's so powerful—the power of that.
0: I know. It's. Uh, I mean, and and it, you know, it's worth noting that like pre-Judeo-Christian religion, like that's what people did—they worshipped the sun. You know, I it it's it's just. I mean, especially
3: after watching this movie, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around like worshiping anything else. Like, you know, what does God hold like? to the sun (laughs) i mean like you can't even get like within you know a million miles of it without like being
0: destroyed (laughs) i feel like if we go any further down this rabbit hole it's just gonna (laughs) become like me showing how much of a militant atheist i am which is like not gonna be useful for the purposes of discussion um but i but i agree with you i i fully get what you're saying like this uh you know and and as a militant atheist like I, look, I i i watch this film and i'm like this is the best argument for like believing and worshiping anything is the scientific fact that the sun does all of this yes but I, I wanted
3: to bring this part of the the uh the conversation up early here because i i watched this uh i don't know if you saw did you see tarantino reviewing this movie
0: no i didn't <laughs>
3: It's a funny, I think he's like introducing a series of movies for for Sky, uh, mm. Sky Movies, at yeah. the UK uh, yeah, TV Network. channel. Yeah, and uh, he programmed this in, in part of his series. I can't track down exactly what the series was, but there's just a recording of him talking about it on YouTube. And he's saying how uh, kind of wild it is that like this is one of the very few movies that like that gets into like the power of the sun as as like a monster as like a you know Mm. a a force of nature that you know can kill us like it's he mentions like another like esoteric sci-fi movie from like the 50s or something i think it's called journey to the far side of the sun let's see where that's from Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, sorry, is from 1969, and uh, a joint European NASA mission to investigate a newly discovered planet which lies directly opposite Earth on the far side of the sun. He says it's, you know, not very good, but it's one of the few that is interested in the sun at all. And uh, I do think it's uh, worth noting here that, like, it's just up there and it's a, a perfect thing to explore for a science fiction movie as yeah. as like a a force of of destruction and it's just kind of crazy that this is like one of the only movies that does it
0: yeah it is it is strange and it and it's amazing that uh it's amazing that Danny Boyle is the one who's doing it and it's amazing right. that he's doing it at this point in his career
3: yeah i mean Tarantino also is is Speaking about Boyle and his, like, sort of, uh, I guess he sort of gravitates towards more, like, sophisticated, like, subjects and is, like, interested in more sophisticated things while uh, Garland has written this script that, like, you know, could... with a different director come off as like very pulpy and like ridiculous this this idea that like these astronauts are going to like send themselves to the surface of the sun is fucking like stupid and and crazy (laughs) And yet this movie is so elegant and like sophisticated
0: it is and and again i think massively helped by the fact that it is grounded in the in the characters and in the humanity of it all um because by by having everyone be forced to reckon with the plot of the film sunshine yeah. you you just have a full understanding of who each of these people are you know
3: yes yeah and the crew here is uh i mean it's a an amazing very cast. very stacked cast yeah and yeah. all of these people have just gone on to become more and more famous and and like significant the, so cool. the exception
0: being maybe um troy garacy who yeah uh, i, I don't moment. i don't have much uh experience with with his work outside of this film really
3: we even get a, a brief uh segment with mark strong right yeah for like a
0: second (laughs) yeah it's i mean yeah it's just a truly uh a truly incredible cast um and many of these people sort of like at the at the brink of their stardom
3: yes which i love so uh before we get to our production history i I feel like we've pretty much hit uh the story at hand here we've mentioned that this is about a crew uh going to the sun we haven't talked about the icarus one though maybe we should hit that
0: yeah so yeah, why don't we just do a quick kind of recap of the plot? So, okay. uh sun is dying. They got to go there to blow it up basically. <laughs> uh this is the second manned mission to the heart of the sun, second and final. Um they say within the the text of the film that they have mined all of Earth's fissible material <laughs> and that they will not have another opportunity to uh create another bomb that could theoretically, you know, solve this this issue for them. It's uh, kind of in no- the same
3: line as uh, of Interstellar, which is it, this notion That's right. that second like, mission, yeah, yeah, the second mission, and also like this is our last chance. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm learning that I really am enjoying these space movies where like if this mission goes wrong, humanity is forever doomed. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's
0: great stakes right there. Great stakes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and again, incredible stakes, very stressful for everyone involved, and you feel that stress <laughs> yes <laughs> so uh, yeah, everyone on board knows that they are humanity's last hope, and uh, they know this because the Icarus one mission has failed, but no one has any sense as to how or why it did not make it to its uh, its destination or, or or why that mission failed when the Icarus two finally makes it past, um, Mercury, they, uh, they begin, they, and, and by this point they they're sort of looking at their supplies and they're realizing like, we have like, we're like good. We have like more supplies than we need to, to do this mission and make it home. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't that, you know, like, so they know that it isn't any kind of like supply issue. It's not oxygen. It's not food. It's not water. Um, so they really don't know, know what the, what the issue could be. And they, when they make it past, uh, past mercury Uh, mercury which is uh has a high metal content becomes a enough of a uh yeah high iron content and it has enough of a a metal content that it is amplifying a distress signal from the icarus one which is seemingly uh almost at its destination just parked right at the surface of the sun
3: yes and uh, yeah, the classic distress signal situation of do we uh, continue towards our mission or do we go uh, try to help out the mission that failed? What, what is that? It's never good in a space movie when we get a distress signal. Yeah,
0: when you get a sudden distant <laughs> uh, mayday call, uh, if, yeah. if watching films like this have taught me anything, uh, ignore the call. Right. Um, because when they reach the Icarus
3: one, uh, what they find there is... Uh, a lot of dust, which is ostensibly human skin, human remains, uh, human rot. Um, They find an oxygen garden that has like really blossomed and and has self-sustained, which bodes well for them because they are running out of oxygen, right?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, at this point, so at first they decide to divert the mission to go to the Icarus 1 because they believe, they think that, you know, two bombs are better than one you know right. we'll actually have two shots at, at mm-hmm. the goal if we if we go and and grab their their payload as well as our and have that in, as well as our own however the process that gets them to the icarus one results in uh the death of uh the captain canada as well as the uh you know the the loss of their oxygen garden and so uh they realize that they have to go to the icarus one because they need to salvage their oxygen in order to succeed in the mission
3: right and uh yes the whole crew on the icarus one is gone except as we find uh there may or may not be one remaining person there uh this uh very nefarious man named Pinbacker. yes um, um, who mark may strong or may, playing
0: yeah. south african for some reason yeah <laughs> it's so weird uh, i just want to call out the accents in this film real quick just simply because um <laughs> It's very clear that they've done that thing that I love in sci-fi movies and space movies where you're like, okay, we you know, we are trying to save humanity. We should have an international cast. Yeah,
3: I, I enjoy um, that.
0: Which is great. So we've got like Cliff Curtis, Michelle Yeoh, Benedict Wong, um Yuki Sanada, like really like these these great actors and then of course you've got Killian Murphy, Rose Byrne, uh Chris mm-hmm. Evans and and Troy Garrity. Right. And I'm like, yes, this is great. I love having this great international cast except that they've got Killian Murphy who's Irish. Rose Byrne, who is Australian, and Cliff Curtis, who I believe is from New Zealand, all playing American. Um, And there's no reason for that. Like, if you're you're going to go ahead and be like, we're doing a big international story here, just let everyone use their voices. (laughs) That's a good point. I wonder what. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, English Mark Strong playing South African, which is fine. But it's like, again, like you have like a a more international cast than you are even letting on. Let them be an international cast. (laughs)
3: i would love to know the choices behind that uh but so pinbacker seems like this dude spent a little bit too much time absorbing uh the power of the sun viewing the sun's rays
0: Uh, yeah pinbacker feels like um what could happen to searl if left unchecked Right. Um, so yes, Searle
3: played by uh, played, by Cliff, played by Cliff
0: Curtis. He he's so good in this film.
3: Yes, he uh, has this weird hobby where he sits in the observation room and he just keeps turning up the the voltage of the <laughs> of the sun. He, he's reducing the filtration, so it's going from like you know two percent filtration to three percent filtration, and just being like, "Wow, damn, that's only three percent," and like it almost destroyed me. Yeah. Um, and there's something sort of spiritual happening, something like again, like mythic here, right. something he's, religious. He's reaching you know. out
0: and touching God.
3: Yes. And I fucking love that. I love yeah. <laughs> I love this idea of just like basking in the full power of the sun and what that could do to a human. And maybe there is some scientific backing here that like, you know, the level of radiation that the sun is sending into you is, you know, is, is fucking you up in ways we cannot even imagine or, mm-hmm. or <laughs> fathom. But uh, in Pinbacker's case, it sure has... Uh, burnt all of his skin off yeah and turned him and, into and, and like an, his in
0: clothing with his skin like yes. he uh I, I think i'll probably say it in the production history but they studied images of people that had um died in like fiery car crashes and, and they were like that's the inspiration for for what this living character is going to look like
3: and he uh he sort of uh, has sort of i don't know the power of the sun or something he can he can kind of like dilate and and you know shrink time he kind of he's always yeah. fucking with the video editing something's going on with him yeah i'm not telling you <laughs>
0: specifically how they do that in a bit but let me just yeah. find the boil quote about about who the character is i think it's worth just saying now um he said He's not your regular villain. We had an idea that, that, that he was a spectral presence, but not a ghost because he's real because of the damage he does. But somehow the forces of light he's been exposed to have sort of reorganized him. And when the crew sees him, it's a challenge to their sanity. Is it possible <laughs> for somebody to be like this? Not just in terms of disfigurement, he's burnt, but also because it appears that all the pieces that make him up, the protons and neutrons have been reorganized in some way and put back together differently and it's not a CG effect. We did that all live with a special lens on the camera. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so I'll, I'll get more into that when we when we do the production history. But yeah, I love this idea that like he has been so sufficiently like cooked by the like, <laughs> you know, the radiation and spiritual power of the sun that it has like, you know, dispersed his atoms and reconfigured them all wrong
3: yeah maybe perhaps like some dr manhattan kind of stuff happening here yeah i mean he kind of becomes a bad dr manhattan and uh the third act of the film which tarantino uh apparently despises and says like a
0: lot of people have this take that they're like i love the first two thirds and the third like the, the final third is like garbage and i'm like you are a coward
3: mm-hmm. i know i mean it doesn't bother me because the monster that we get in this third act is still you know part of the sun's power like it still comes from you know the effects yeah. of this mission and the effects i think of the everything sun. works here yeah and uh come on it's a science fiction movie set in space and isolated places you gotta have a xenomorph and, like, <laughs> exactly <laughs> the 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 ag the idea that the xenomorph is this like <laughs> supernatural being that's powered by you know the nuclear force of the sun is so fucking fun yeah um and uh yeah pinbacker basically chases uh, uh the remains of the crew onto uh the bomb and right it's up, it's up to and, uh, and
0: by the time we reach our last kind of like 10 minutes the only people left are uh kappa played by killian murphy casey played by by rose byrne and uh and pinbacker played by mark strong and and kappa has to uh has to get the bomb to activate uh otherwise the mission will fail
3: yes And, um, and the space sun, uh, monster is, is, is trying his best to stop him from doing that. Yeah. Uh, And they succeed And, and they bring, they bring light back to the earth, the very icy frozen earth. Um, you know, interesting idea that in 2057, the earth would be covered with ice and it would be like this, you know a desolate like winter landscape whereas i think it's probably more realistic that it will be a seething hot fireball of a place to yeah, exist. We're going to burst into flames. <laughs> Absolutely. So maybe we need to go kill the sun in
0: 2057. Now there's, there's the movie. well yeah the plot of uh, Highlander 2 The Quickening um, ah. is that the o- the ozone has gotten so thin that they've uh, they've put a metallic shield over the earth to prevent the the sun from uh, from from you know melting everyone and they've entered a state of uh, infinite night and uh, pure lawlessness um, and nobody has a good time i'm looking forward to that to that era <laughs> we'll see if we get there yeah
3: all right production history let's do it your last
0: day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.
2: When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy...
3: Our sun is dying. Mankind faces extinction. Sixteen months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our mission, reignite the sun, before it's too late. Welcome to Icarus 2.
0: All right sunshine written by alex garland and directed by danny boyle and we should say this is their third collaboration um they had previously done uh the beach uh with leo dicaprio uh 28 days later which is the you know sort of killian murphy's big breakout role and uh and then this film i've never seen the beach have you the beach is the only danny boyle film that i have never seen um it's just never uh excited me and because he seems to kind of like disown that one um I've just never found myself drawn to it as a completionist like I'll get to it eventually but yeah. uh you know he I, I remember when he was doing press for uh for Spotting 2 because that film is such a sort of like it's a hearkening back to the you know like his breakout film and it's, it's Trainspotting his second film not his first film but it's his breakout film and so like All of the press for Trainspotting 2 ends up becoming a career retrospective for him. And I remember him talking about, uh, you know, this film, but also talking about The Beach and him basically saying that, like, he never should have made that movie and it was, like, a huge mistake and that, you know, even if he had made it, he should have done it, like, completely differently.
3: Huh. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a 1996 novel by Garland. Yeah. Set in Thailand. The story of a young backpacker's search for a legendary, idyllic, and... Isolated beach, untouched by tourism. Interesting. Maybe I'll read it. I'd like to see that movie. Stars DiCaprio. Sounds yeah. interesting.
0: And it's right after Titanic, too. Yeah, yeah. The film has cinematography by Alvin kutchler who is known for his work on Divergent, the Mauritanian Steve Jobs, uh, also by Danny Boyle, uh, and of course his appearance on the Wonderful Craft Services podcast, where he discussed his work on Steve Jobs. Yeah. Good job, Parth. Great job, Parth. The film was edited by Chris Gill and it stars Killian Murphy, Michelle Yeoh, Cliff Curtis, Hiroyuki Sonata, Rose Byrne, Benedict Wong, Troy Garrity, and Mark Strong.
3: You know, I've always said there's strong and then there's Mark
0: Strong. <laughs>
3: <laughs> do you remember that, that Army commercial?
0: Yeah, Army Strong. Like that was a catchphrase <laughs> for a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> like that that it's mark strong for years
3: (laughs) that rules every time i see him that's what enters my mind
0: (laughs) we should make that t-shirt we should (laughs) with the the army like like, uh, good eye of the duck merch font and everything yeah Yeah. (laughs) i'm into that so after directing millions which uh path uh path every now and then editorializes in in the research mostly to uh to point out when people have appeared on craft services um but sometimes we'll <laughs> just write in parentheses things like this which is after directing millions parentheses a good film <laughs> <laughs> and i will say millions is a good film uh it's it's a very cool movie that i've I, not I think seen that watch. it's really cool this the premise of the film is basically that um in a fictional sort of like alternative um future where England decides to join the euro uh and get rid of um pound sterling they uh a young boy finds a like bag full of uh a bag full of like British pounds before the the money goes out of circulation and uh you know what is he going to do with all of this money he's a child he can't possibly make good decisions um it's a good movie So after that film, uh, Boyle wants to direct a movie called 3,000 Degrees, which is a film based on the true story of a Massachusetts fire that killed six firefighters in 1999. Mm -hmm. However, the film falls apart after some of the victims' families and survivors uh, spoke out against the production. Um, So that film film dies. (laughs) But around this time, uh, Garland sends the script for Sunshine to Boyle because he had uh, already been working on it. Uh, boyle said of receiving the script alex garland who i worked with on 28 days later wrote the script he gave it to me in a pub in london we met for an illicit cigarette you know which we do occasionally and i just thought what an amazing premise for a film this idea of eight astronauts strapped to the back of a massive bomb the size of manhattan island flying toward the heart <laughs> of the sun where they're going to try and explode it i just thought that was pretty cool
3: <laughs> that is pretty cool <laughs> it is <laughs> but we should also note that uh, apparently boyle declines to do the fourth alien film
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we did talk about that when we were talking about alien resurrection that, um, that had been one of the, the film, one of the opportunities available to him. Um, but he, but he did not want to do it because he thought he would ruin the movie. Um,
3: it's, uh, I mean, I feel like we, we are sort of getting what his alien movie would have felt like perhaps with this movie.
0: Maybe. Yeah.
3: Uh, There there is some some big alien energy happening in this one and he's noting it as one of his influences for this film.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Um but I I maybe it's just because it's uh it's in the same like era, but watching this movie I just kept thinking about alien resurrection and like I think the the uh the era of uh practical and, and VFX is uh it's similar enough that makes me feel like the spaceships and everything look look uh, kind of similar.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And Boyle says of this, I was a big Star Trek fan when I was a kid, uh, but I never watched the movies. I don't know why. I never made the transition to the movies. I'm not a big fan of the fantasy stuff like Star Wars. It's really more the hardcore stuff like Alien especially the first one using that almost Victorian industrial look in space. It's Mm -hmm. brilliant. It's about 28 years old and it still just stuns me. It has been much copied. Um, so yeah, I think the, the influence of, of that film, um, and those films is, is clear here. Um, I am ultimately glad that Boyle doesn't do Resurrection because I do not think that the issues with Alien Resurrection that um, audiences seem to have with that film come from its execution. I think it comes from its uh, premise and its screenplay. And yeah, for sure. I would hate for Boyle's career to have been, you know, basically cut short by uh, failing to deliver on a massive, you know, studio franchise sequel blockbuster yeah. that would have been hated by by audiences.
3: I'm a big alien resurrection supporter. Yeah, me though. as well. But uh, like I'll, I'm just I'll saying,
0: the, the the public response was so negative that like it could yeah. have seriously fucked up his career.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point.
0: Yeah. So Garland came up with the film's premise after reading an article in an American scientific periodical which discussed the notion of the heat death of the universe. He says, the original trigger for the movie was an article about the long-term future of the sun. We completely rely on the sun for life, and it's totally hostile. It's beautiful, but if you look at it, it will blind you. I am an atheist, but you can make a fair argument for the sun as God. It does a lot of godlike <laughs> things, even though it's not sentient. It's a life-giver and a death-giver in equal measure. Yep, that's where we just were, yep, you know, like
3: 20 minutes ago. <laughs> everything we were just saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: he said, what interests me was the idea that it could get to a point when the entire planet's survival rests on the shoulders of one man and what that would do to his head.
3: Hmm. Uh, That, that man being Killian Murphy, I guess here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, But you know, basically he he's, he's reading that article and thinking like, you know, what, what would actually happen, you know, in that scenario, like, like, would we be able to do something about it? And him just sort of realizing like, yeah, it would probably all end up coming down to one person at the end of the day.
3: Yeah, and that's definitely one of the main like traumas that this movie has to contend with. This idea that like these guys aren't going home. I mean, even if they're telling their family like I'll see you in a few years, chances are, you know, they're going to get that close to the sun, they don't have much of a chance. Yeah. Uh if at all. Yeah. And it's uh you know, it it's I feel like it's a difficult thing to to unpack
0: as a screenwriter. I mean it's the that, it's the magic of this film. It's it's what makes yeah, it so, so good. None of
3: your none of your main characters will survive. So like what are the stakes and like what what's the point of all this? Like what you know we, without again, just, in the scene territory yeah. here. Okay. Don. All right.
0: <laughs> So, uh, and Garland chooses to set the film only 50 years in the future because he wants the technology in the film to be recognisable to the audiences um, as a way of helping to ground them in the stakes of the film. Um, Despite the notion of the sun exploding being, uh, you know, far distant future from now. Mm -hmm. After being given Garland's script, Boyle and Garland work on it together for a year and produce a total of 35 drafts. All right. Yeah. Boyle uh, apparently planned to have a sex scene between uh, Killian Murphy and Rose Byrne in the Oxygen Garden, but ended up cutting (laughs) it because uh, he thought it would be too difficult for them to do sex in space. (laughs) <laughs> he said it's very difficult in space i'm not quite sure why but for the movie it didn't work we put it in we actually tried it in the script but it just felt really wrong somehow you would think it would be a natural thing with chris evans Rose Byrne, killian murphy Rose Byrne for it to develop romantically in some way but it doesn't really suit it at all
3: <laughs> i mean there's a hint of it going on
0: i'm there's, not surprised i do, do think you, you can yeah, feel there's a that, that there's some, killian murphy and roseburn are a couple of some sort yeah there's some tension or interest there yeah so Boyle's producer Andrew McDonald who has been with him since like the shallow grave train spotting days uh he's pretty hesitant to make Sunshine uh McDonald had a deal with Fox Searchlight but the film required a 40 million dollar budget which is much higher than the kind of film that Searchlight would normally make uh and Fox themselves was were pretty hesitant on making the film because of Solaris um, mm-hmm. McDonald said 20th century was not bidding on Sunshine. The reason is pretty obvious. They had made Solaris. So just, you know, five years earlier, they would made this uh, massive box office bomb uh, that was also a kind of esoteric space film.
3: Okay, so hold on. So Sunshine is 2007 and Solaris, Solaris is, 2002.
0: is 2002.
3: When... I feel like... Like, programming this series has been interesting because... I am nervous that like so many of these movies are from like the past few years. Uh, And I think one of the reasons why that, that is happening is because technology has finally reached the point where like we can tell stories like interstellar, like gravity. I always, I feel cautious of like being, you know, a, a, film podcaster and being like the best movies are all within like the past decade
0: (laughs) well yeah i don't Um, think we're saying that i mean there's definitely recency bias but like there is also just the fact that like we have gotten more of these films recently because yeah we now have it it's easier to make them now
3: and i wonder i mean we're not covering any movies uh made before 2001 a space odyssey and, and part of that is because there are just so few like movies of this nature of this, like very specific genre of like being isolated on a space station. There's so few of them that are like of note. Yeah. And, uh, do you think that following Solaris, there was sort of a lull in, in the franchise because that in the franchise. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. In the, in the genre, in the Solaris cinematic universe. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I would watch a Solaris cinematic universe. Uh, in the genre i guess is there kind of i mean so from 2002 to 2007 i'm wondering if any of these movies that we're covering sit in there i mean maybe not maybe it has been pretty consistent like since since like the late 70s maybe we have kind of consistently had space
0: movies or space operas you know I mean, there is a consistent flow of space movies like every decade. Um, I just think that the ones that you and I are perhaps gravitating towards for this series are a little more recent because of recency bias. Do you think so, though? I really wonder.
3: I mean, if you, if you like are, like when we researched this series, the ones of note, like the ones that are known to be significant and good all seem to be from like the past like three decades
0: yeah but i mean yeah so from the past three decades that's 30 years worth of filmmaking and uh that's when the technology really comes into its own true
3: i guess when you get any earlier than that we get Closer to like the like Flash Gordons like the you know the space opera the B kind of stuff
0: B sci fi stuff and two thousand one starts the kind of film that we are covering here. That's very true. Like that's that's what it comes down to is that that is the moment where the kind of film we are covering comes into existence. This kind of like esoteric and you know soul searching film about the nature of like. Of what it is to be human in the context right. of space travel,
3: and a lot of that uh, can only be accomplished when technology is, you know, has has reached the point where, like, they can do miniatures, like drifting through space. Right when they you can, when you do, can like,
0: render space in a way that feels believable and grounded, and yeah. and the concept isn't, you know, like there's a monster in space. The concept right, isn't right. there's like you know there's this thing in space. The, the the concept is space is real and we're in it. Yeah. Yeah. After consulting with NASA, Boyle learns that they had a department entirely devoted to the psychology of deep space travel. Boyle learned that NASA had found that astronauts had to maintain some level of a routine similar to Earth in order to remain sane. This involved growing their own food, cooking it, and cleaning up afterwards which is why we have uh you know such special attention paid to uh meal times in this film and uh, and the oxygen garden and these notions that like they need to be taking an active role in maintaining their own survival.
3: Mm-hmm. This is one of those movies though that uh they're not floating around in their ship. They're just walking,
0: riding Well they race have of they have they have gravity, you know. Uh which is the thing like in in these sci-fi films you can say like oh yeah, we've we've developed a way to create you know, gravity, gravity with inside in the, yeah. <laughs> the, the ships we travel in. Furthering the exploration of that psychology, uh, production visited a nuclear submarine to better understand the reality of claustrophobic living situations. Ah.
3: They spent some time with our friend James Cameron. <laughs> do you think Cameron pilots nukes on his his self made submarines? I definitely do
0: not think that, uh, <laughs> that he has a, a a nuclear reactor on board his uh, his his sub. His, his uh, one or, person. Or nuclear submarine. weapons. Yeah, no way. Um, but he does. Uh, you know but but boyle is definitely taking inspiration in in the design of the ship as well from from these submarines like even in terms of like the way that the ship is constructed as this like elongated thing with these like different pods and sections that jut out from it you know it looks like a submarine with a satellite dish on the front uh
3: yeah that's true i mean it's it is very it's this very confining tube right it makes sense
0: When casting the film uh, Boyle approached Michelle Yeoh for a role in the project and the character she ended up playing uh, much like Sigourney Weaver in Alien was originally scripted as a male character Uh, but Boyle changed the part specifically to be able to work with her.
3: Yeah she's great in this and uh, it's so great to just see her show up here and uh, Rose Byrne and uh, Benedict Wong and Yeah. Mark Strong. It's like all these kind of unsung heroes of, of, you know, the past few decades uh, just showing up in this movie randomly. I guess Chris Evans at this point now is like one of the the big Chris's. i I feel like chris evans at
0: this time is uh he's the biggest actor in the film really because he's done the like fantastic four films Mm -hmm. and he's uh starting to blow up he's yeah he's had like a really great like comedy career at this point like doing lots of uh like rom-coms and stuff um but then he enters that like kind of like weird period right after this where people are like not really sure what to do with him and right. he he ends up in uh in Scott Pilgrim kind of playing a parody of the kind of actor that he yeah. ends up you the know kind of becoming you know yeah. um
3: and his career and the way that we like think of him as a screen presence just changes so much when you get to Captain America like all of a sudden he's like this you know kind of uh, perfectly, you know, uh, virtuous and and ethical man. This, you know, yeah. he represents all the goodness of human beings. He's perfect guy, and I, I tend to forget that. Like before 2011, Chris Evans is like, you know, is like the human torch. He's like, yeah, fuck you. I'm like a cool <laughs> renegade motorcycle man, <laughs> <laughs> and he's making cool choices too. I mean, he's showing up he in is. like Snowpiercer and. uh yeah, and Scott Pilgrim, which is great. yeah. I mean, and
0: he's yeah. he's he's definitely tried to um, you know use his time between Marvel projects to do stuff he cares about. That's true. You know? Yeah. Um, he even directed a feature in in 2014 that he stars in with uh, with Alice Eve. Um, I know. I still haven't seen that. I wonder. Yeah. I heard it wasn't very good, right? Um, I enjoyed it, but that's because. Uh, I I will happily watch and enjoy any film set in New York over the course of, like, one evening. That's kind of catnip (laughs) for me. Um, Yeah, I should watch it.
3: I tend to enjoy this, too.
0: Yeah. Um, But even then, you look at a film like Gifted, like, that's, like, a passion project for him. Uh, Knives Out, I don't think is a a passion project necessarily, but, like, he's so well cast in it. Yes, he's great, He's fucking perfect.
3: And he's doing all this Broadway stuff, too, which is fucking awesome.
0: Right. Um, all of which is to say is that we're all we're clearly fans of uh, of Chris Evans on this show. Yeah, I think
3: he might be the best Chris, except Chris Pine. Chris I Pine, I very much support too. Yeah, good Chris.
0: I'm very pro Pine. Um, speaking of Chris Pine, uh, star of the uh, you know Star Trek uh, films, uh, mm-hmm, worth pointing mm-hmm. out that Michelle Yeoh is uh, is also in Star Trek. Um, she is uh, she's a main cast member on Star Trek Discovery. Uh, oh right, uh, on and off,
3: yeah. Uh, you're selling. I mean. Getting closer and closer to getting me to watch gonna Star happen. Trek. I'm getting very close these days. It's gonna
0: happen.
3: It's just a bummer that it's just not any good. And I'm it's gonna a kill you. I'm <laughs> gonna fucking
0: kill you. <laughs> uh, anyway, so after uh, after Michelle Yeoh gets the script, she she turns around to, to Boyle and says... Um, why do you think at this time it's still the Russians and the Americans going to space? Wouldn't you have more Japanese, Chinese, and would it be a more united group going up to save the Earth? It's not like a mission to Mars on your own, right? It would be a more collaborative effort. Um, and he takes that advice uh, and, and he says, In truth, in 50 years' time, it will be entirely Asian. They will be leading the space race between India, China, Japan, Korea, etc. But you have to have some Americans still for the cinematic market, I guess, but it was a chance to work with Michelle Yeoh. That was the real reason. The coolest Bond girl ever.
3: And also his response is, like, oh yeah, you're right. Let's not put any Russian people in this. <laughs> you know what? It'll just be Americans and uh, and Asians.
0: <laughs> this is what I'm saying though about like, why are all the white characters American? Yeah. Like, there's, it's especially given that like in real life, they are not all American. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense.
3: <laughs> that should be a wide spectrum here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: the ship's computer is played by uh cheapo chung and uh she was cast after the casting director saw her in a play uh chung did all of her lines on set and was present throughout all of production so that she felt like more of a live presence and part of the crew
3: yeah and there's no bad robot
0: here yeah you
3: know she's a good robot uh, this is a back-to-back, two, two good robots, right? We did Moon yeah. last last week. We I mean, part dirty. of why
0: we've paired Moon and Sunshine together, um, one, the obvious uh, you know, pairing of the Sun and the Moon. Number two, uh, good robots in both of them. Number mm-hmm. three, Benedict Wong is in both of them.
3: Right. Number and four, the, yes, both and made
0: by uh, English filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs>
3: they follow the new constitutional uh, amendment that all films should have... At least Benedict Wong, if not Benedict Wong, and uh, and Matt Berry, <laughs> and uh, and Matt Berry, our friend yeah. Matt
0: Berry. It's a shame Matt Berry isn't also in this one.
3: <laughs> Who we should also point out that uh, when Adam and I were recording some ad reads, or or. Some, uh, <laughs> some- some CTA's, I think you call them.
0: I had just rewatched uh, all of Post of London, uh, <laughs> like in like literally the day that we were recording all those ads. And
3: something was just happening to Adam, where as we are trying to just pitch our <laughs> podcast, he is becoming Matt Berry, and we have to like stop recording and be like, "Dude, you a hundred percent sound like Matt Berry. You have to stop." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for people who don't know Matt Barry, you know, he's very popular recently from uh, what we do in what the show, the Shadows. TV show is the New York City. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that is how Adam is. <laughs> Eye of the duck. <laughs> Why are you doing that? <laughs>
0: I had truly just spent like four hours watching uh, yes. watching Matt Berry. And in Toast of London, he's playing a guy in a voiceover booth saying the same <laughs> phrases over and over again. Yes! Yes! <laughs> like, I just I couldn't get it out of my head.
3: You would, like, assume this very specific stance <laughs> and then just, like, deliver, like, in our podcast, <laughs> we look at Eye of the Duck scenes. I can't, I can't really do it, but...
0: <laughs> anyway, this is an episode on Danny Boyle's Sunshine... um boyle says that him and garland met with scientists and physicists to keep some semblance of reality um he said the script does take some leaps at the end but if you can ground it in the first quarter you can believe the stuff that happens in the end when it all goes time warping ballistic Mm -hmm. and that's uh that's what i like i mean fuck tarantino's take on this why can't we go to this place? why can't I mean I agree oh, I think I, I truly know. believe that the that if you don't like the third act because I don't normally say things like this I'm gonna say if you <laughs> don't you like go. the third act of this film it's because you're a coward and there is no other reason why that's it It's the only acceptable reason for not liking the third act of this film and I want very you good. to sit with that knowledge
3: very good I love when we get to this point uh, <laughs> you know uh it's it's a problem I think that. A lot of filmmakers face in these in these big sort of space sci-fi epics that, you know, try to stick to science fiction fact, and they end up in a space like like the end of Interstellar, which is like another one of those divisive uh, mm-hmm. spots where it's like, wait, we've spent this whole movie, you know, tracking like to like the you know to the minute the the amount of time that would pass when they go you know around other planets, et cetera. And then in the end of this movie, we, we reached this like very bizarre uh, space library yeah. of, of time manipulation. And, and that turns people off, which I get, but also uh, I don't care. I mean, personally, as yeah. a viewer, I don't need accuracy. As long as there's emotional truth, I really don't care. I mean, if you want accuracy, go watch a space documentary. I go mean, read a textbook. <laughs> it's all fake. Like, it's all just like guys and and you know pretending to be in space, like none of it's real. <laughs> yeah
0: exactly. uh although speaking of keeping things real, okay. uh Boyle hired futurist Richard Seymour, who is the inventor of the uh, cordless kettle, um to mm. talk to the uh, the actors and introduce them to some of the scientific concepts within the film. um and also physicist uh Dr. Brian Cox was a consultant on the project. Um, And he, a real physicist, unlike you, a standard Mm -hmm. audience member, Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. happy with the film's treatment of science and scientists. There you go. Yeah. Uh, While in most other science fiction films, scientists cause trouble, Cox liked that it was up to Murphy's knowledge as a scientist to save the world. And Boyle wanted to imbue the actors with the uncompromising cold eye that scientists have and arranged for the actors to meet with Cox as well. Which I think you see in sequences where you have, like, Mace being like, we're going to run out of oxygen unless we kill Troy. You know? Like, that is an uncompromising and cold way of looking at the world. Uh, But it feels right at home in in this film. But, I mean, there are sequences where, like you know we have
3: this moment where uh Cyril uh opens the filter to, to like 3% of the sun's power and it mm-hmm. you know nearly like destroys his retina so we have that and that feels realistic and and earned and you know it enough steeped in reality that we can buy it but then later in the film there's a sequence where they need to go out into space and physically repair some of the solar panels so uh Canada and uh and Kappa uh go out physically in, in these gold plated uh, uh spacesuits to to do some repairs. So they are like on the solar panels uh taking on like immense uh solar wind and sun rays. So- yeah, and- yeah. And I'm wondering like can I buy this that like these these Human beings wouldn't just melt. Like, are there are there solar panelled spacesuits like that powerful to stop? You know, this this guy could barely even look at like three percent of the sun's power.
0: Then these guys are like. But right. the visors on the front of that of that thing is like a welding mask. You know.
3: Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, I, I'm surprised to hear a scientist be like, "Yeah, this all checks out for me." <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh well, um, Boyle said of Brian Cox. Brian Cox is the nicest guy, but he's so arrogant. I used to tell the actors to watch the way he'll just go, no. He works, at C- <laughs> he works at CERN, where they are looking for this particle they nicknamed the God Particle. There is a tiny, tiny chance that when they collide these protons, they'll create a black hole into which we will all disappear. I said, you're still going to go ahead with it? And he said, don't worry about it. You won't know anything about it. If it happens, everything will be gone. <laughs> He had this argument in the bar last night. He said, it's absolutely critical we use nuclear power. And Killian said, what about the Irish Sea? It's so polluted and there's all these leukemia clusters. And Cox went, if we use nuclear power, we can give light and food to a million people in Africa. And you're worried about a few hundred people in Ireland. Yeah. Which again, you feel all of that in the film you know that is the the way in which they're looking at looking at this like they are they are fully saying that like some lives are worth more than others or less than others like the reason they go to the icarus one isn't to save the potential survivors of that mission it's to grab the bomb to increase the chances of their own success
3: yeah i mean so much is at stake here and uh there are have, they're they're just there are going to be extremely brutal decisions made, right? Yeah. <laughs> that is part of the conflict and and the drama of this film, which is, you know, part of why it's so compelling to watch.
0: Yeah. So this film did not, uh, they didn't shoot extended sequences in the Vomit Comet like uh, some of the other things we've talked about here, but they did uh, have the actors go through um, zero G, uh, you know, rehearsing uh, so they could get a feel for what it would be like uh, to embody that uh, performance. So they went up in this uh, this tiny little plane uh, that uh, I couldn't tell from the footage if it was doing like small parabolas or if it was just entering low orbit, but I think mm-hmm. it might have been parabolas. And so um, you know, it's like the pilot and the the actor are strapped in that's that's all that's in the plane it's really tiny and then they were just sort of putting stuff on the dashboard and so as they're like entering zero g the stuff starts just to like float in front of them and and the pilot is sort of saying to them like reach out try and feel what it's like to grab it yeah feel the blood like rushing out of your head like and all this stuff and so um all of the main cast got to do this and uh most of them seem to enjoy it um hiroyuki sanada i remember watching him and him saying i've never done that before i'll never do it again but like i'll always remember it <laughs> wow and I,
3: yeah. I would really love to experience that in Me my too. life i wonder uh, like how accessible it will be in in you know in coming years
0: <laughs> when we start an eye of the duck patreon i think the fourth tier will be sponsoring uh, you know a zero g <laughs> flight for for you and i yes send us to space send us to space
3: just for our enjoyment
0: yeah and uh and cox also had stuff to say about the uh the scientific backing of the of the 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 heat death of the sun uh he says the the only issue is that it would have uh it would occur in five billion years and not 50 um however he did find further kind of like evidence for it he says our backstory for the sun dying is that a large blob of supersymmetric particles called a Q-ball has drifted mm-hmm. into the solar core and is slowly eating it away. This has been suggested as a possible explanation for gamma ray bursts. Our sun is not dense enough to stop a Q-ball, it would fly straight through. But the general idea is that there is a lot of stuff in the universe that is not the familiar matter that we are made of. And there are theories in which this stuff is not entirely benign."
3: Yeah, I mean it's explanations like this that just further sort of uh earn and and like validate the ending of this film that like you have this unknown mass of of, of great power and size and yeah. you know and and nuclear and, uh, capability and I think it's kind of smart of them to to end this film with a monster who is a creation of this power right it's he's made up of, per- of
0: these kind of like strange yeah, particles that don't make it sense
3: personifies it for us yeah yeah
0: yeah fully agree just before production began at Boyle's request the cast moved into dorm rooms for a week and a half in East London so they could become comfortable with living with each other and living in tiny conditions that the characters would be living in um, which is great and also so funny that um, it's like, yep. In order to simulate the uh, the trauma of living on a spaceship, uh, we're going to put you in uh, college dorm rooms. Yeah, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> you're going to live like university students for a week, yeah. and that will uh, that will prepare you for space. That that sounded a little Matt Berry just then. <laughs> I think you're going back into it. It's infecting me again. University students. <laughs> Production mostly took place in the Three Mill Studios in London's East End. Um, and the, uh, you know, so let's talk about the Icarus a little bit. Uh, as you've already said, you know, on a, in terms of scale, the, uh, the solar shield on the front is a mile across. And so they don't do any miniatures for this. Uh, whenever you're seeing a full shot of the Icarus, uh, it is designed purely in CG, in a CG landscape uh, in front of a CG sun. Um, they do, of course, uh, create uh, sets based on the, you know, some of the hallways, some of the uh, specific quarters, the dining room, etc. Um, those are real practical builds that they have uh, they've put up in the studio.
3: So it fails the atom test of, of a space station completely
0: pre-lit. It is uh, not a three hundred and sixty degree pre lit <laughs> uh, functional uh, space station that I could both live in and and, uh, and shoot a film. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alwin Kirchler, the uh, the DP, uh, opted to shoot uh, anamorphic for the film in order to give the light uh, a, a sort of feeling of undulation. Boyle said of Kutchler, great cinematographer, Alwyn Kutchler, a real prince of darkness. My kind of eyes, really, on the movie. He had this amazing idea of keeping the interior of the spacecraft all gray, blue and green. No reference to orange, red or yellow. And then when you go outside the ship, you reintroduce yellow, having been starved of it for 20 minutes. We wanted the light to literally penetrate people's bodies. That's super smart. Yeah. Uh, what For our listeners,
3: uh, what does anamorphic mean? Here.
0: Yeah, so there's two kinds of lenses: uh, spherical lenses and anamorphic lenses. Spherical lenses are your like standard lenses. If you if you're picking up like a you know uh, any old you know lens, it's it's probably a spherical lens. Mm-hmm. But um, anamorphic lenses were developed essentially to allow you to expand the scope of your film without losing any kind of detail or depth. Because if you're shooting on 35 millimeter film stock and you're shooting on spherical lenses and you want that two, three, five, one of those ultra wide scope aspect ratios, Mm -hmm. you're essentially going to just crop the frame, which means you're just slicing off the top and bottom of the frame and losing information but if you're shooting anamorphic you're actually going to capture the whole vertical height of the image and what you'll get is this weird like squeezed image and so then you have to de-squeeze that image and when you're de-squeezing it you are pulling it out into that wider shape and you get the full two three five aspect ratio right okay yeah i mean now sometimes when you're watching a film that's shot anamorphic because we're all on digital sensors very often what you're actually just watching is um number one you don't need to shoot like anamorphic to get that scope look you can just crop the the sensor to to two three aspect ratio um but also you can you can you know you can do a lot of the anamorphic look um either digitally or like practically using um non-anamorphic lenses like i shot a short uh, many years ago that we wanted an anamorphic look we had no budget for anamorphic lenses Mm -hmm. so we put a bit of fishing wire on the back of the the lens and it created those sort of like horizontal flares and you can get get filters that like change the shape of the bokeh so like you can get that (laughs) like anamorphic look you know uh, without without shooting um anamorphic specifically
3: so it's fascinating that for a film that is uh very you know confined to these small spaces in space he's going for this more expansive lens choice but i guess it certainly helps to show the uh the the breadth and the you know the size of the sun for sure i mean
0: yeah i mean it it helps yeah expanding the scope in that way i think is really useful because also there are moments where like and i hope this isn't a spoiler for your scene but like for example when um when when Kappa and Casey are talking to each other after um, Kappa has woken up in the middle of the night with this nightmare of falling into the service of the sun. Yeah. Oh, I love that. An amazing sequence and a great scene. When you show two people um, in like clean singles uh, in profile, when you shoot in this two, three, five uh, ratio like this, it means that like you're just creating an ocean of space between the two of them. Um, mm-hmm. Because in order to frame up the the faces and profile like that, most of the frame is the negative space compared sure. to them looking and looking out into that negative space. Right. So you shoot one of them like framed left looking right, and one of them framed right looking left, and it just feels like there's a mile between them, even though they're in this very intimate setting. Huh. It's cool. Yes. It's a yes. good movie. It's a good choice. Yeah. Kochler said, "I'm sure every DOP would want to shoot a science fiction film." Only when I had to prep it did I realize how bloody difficult it was going to be. I never, ever could compete with the real beauty of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck. Yeah. You're and, the one
3: test with like shaping the light and, you know, the, the way light then, look, there's interacts the sun. on screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and I mean, like, and and Boyle, you know, again, when he was doing that T2 press, he's sort of saying like, you know, I have immense respect for anyone that makes a space movie. It's absolutely the hardest fucking thing to do. Like, you know, never again. <laughs> and he never does. <laughs> yeah. And he says, you know, he had he had trouble with the uh with, with scenes featuring, you know, zero gravity. He said that would have looked better if I just carried the person in my arms. <laughs> <laughs> If you watch actual space station weightlessness movements are at normal speed, but in movies it has to be done in slow motion. If you do it the way it's done on a space station, it looks phony. Um, so you know he he had trouble getting that to work. Yeah. Um, although I do think it looks quite good in this in this you know a lot of this, the the stuff that's on uh, the exterior of the space station and like when they're doing things like you know flying between you know the 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 just in the spacesuit, going between yeah, the two the airlocks to space. Yeah. Between the airlocks, like that is a uh, stunt doubles in costumes on wires against a green screen. Um, and Got like it. you can see on the behind the scenes, they are being rocketed across very, very fast. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, he goes 2001 when he does exterior stuff, right? Like he's mm-hmm. interested in like the kind of ballet, the, you know, the the way that mm-hmm. that these bodies are drifting through this negative space. I think that's where his head is when he does yeah. when he does the real space stuff. Otherwise, it doesn't seem like he's much interested. Like, hence why you know they're walking on this ship and there's no sign of you know gravitational stuff at all
0: right we just understand when you're on the ship there's gravity when you're yeah, not, you're yeah. kind of doing this strange little dance right yeah um so i already mentioned uh that pinbackers burns were based on um you know uh, car crash uh people that people that had suffered in car crashes but in in particular they had looked at nikki lauder who was a, a race car driver who had uh, been in a terrible accident um but initially the the other victims uh on the icarus one uh they were based on people that had died in the uh volcanic eruption uh in Pompeii. Um, which you can oh, totally wow. see when you when you look at them. Yeah. It's actually like my first thought when I saw that, and then get to the research phase and lo and behold, that's the inspiration.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah, that makes so much sense. And yeah. the way that they just kind of like explode when you touch them. Yeah. They're yeah. just
0: they're just dust. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're just ash. Uh, so you were talking about that that spacesuit earlier? Um, they based the design uh, of those suits on uh, samurai armor, deep sea body suits, medieval <laughs> armor, and of course Kenny from South Park. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny! <laughs> yeah. Um, and the suits are sort of made, you know, uh, with much lighter materials than than they appear in the film. Um, but and and that is to uh, give the actors as much mobility as possible. And they also um, put cameras inside the the helmets themselves so that we can see the actors' faces um, without having to make the design uh, unrealistic. Boyle is sort of uh, on the behind the scenes. He's he's saying how silly it is that when you watch a space movie, most people's space helmets are just almost entirely glass which is of course done so that you get maximum access to the actor's face but but sure. saying that like that's completely ridiculous because glass is not going to like do much to protect you uh in the long run you need as, uh, as a little glass coverage as possible for maximum safety and especially in the case of this where it's you know all about protecting them from the sun um you need that kind of uh kenny from south park (laughs) funnel shape uh, with with just the uh the single bit of like you know um welding armor in front of it um which then means if you want to be able to see the actor the only way to do that would be to put a camera in there uh but he was happy with that because he said it gave a a claustrophobia that they could use in their performances uh, and that they learn very quickly what's going to work and what's not. They learn how to use a tool like that, and that benefits the film.
3: Yeah, uh, and I feel like we have a little bit of precedent for, like, for, you know, an onboard camera inside an astronaut's helmet. Like, when when we cut to them um, inside their helmet, like, you know... Uh, furiously trying to fix this solar panel it does it it makes us feel confined and everything and it it raises the stakes because we we feel trapped and we feel sweaty and we we feel uh terrified but also uh i feel like we're reminded of like you know aliens like seeing uh you know those onboard cameras absolutely seeing the cameras you know their faces It it all works i feel like for the genre and and for the the drama happening in the moment
0: yeah i think so too so for the scene of uh, Mace's death, you know, where, where Chris Evans is getting in and out of this, like, you know, freezing cold coolant tank, uh, <laughs> Evans asked Boyle to have production lower the temperature in the room uh, to be two degrees Celsius uh, so that his breath would be visible on screen. Damn. Yeah. Um, he wanted to really feel the, uh, the reality of that. And Evans wore a dry suit underneath his costume to prevent his body uh, temperature from going too low underwater. Um, and the suit could only be so helpful because it had, like, short sleeves. Uh, and the sequences had to be filmed very, very quickly so that Evans, much like Mace, uh, would not get hypothermia.
3: Wow. It's so funny that his character throughout this film it's just, like, keeps getting cold. <laughs> I mean, it happens early on, too, where he sticks his hand into, like, the coolant tank. Yeah. And, uh, and then... I guess it's it's kind of a foreshadowing. And then that, that hand he, gets yeah.
0: frostbitten when he yeah. kind of flies through the airlock, and yeah,
3: why does this keep happening to him? <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah,
0: Evan said, "I guess if the water is warmer than the air in the room, it will start to warm the room up." There are these massive tanks; these four tanks of water. So the water had to be even colder, just above freezing. And it was a horrible day at work. Just you My know, God. you'd yeah. go in and be like, "Oof! Can't believe I have to get in this water." <laughs>
3: oh man i mean the sensory like overload that happens when you jump into a freezing cold vat of water horrible it's It's like one of the most shocking
0: things you can yeah you can feel yeah they
3: say it's great for you though mentally i guess it's like that (laughs) polar bear club thing yeah yeah yeah. Yeah,
0: no thank you i got asked to shoot that once and i was just i you i was like nope just there's no there's no day right here that's gonna get me to dive into that water (laughs) find someone else Boyle said of simulating the sun, uh, we had this extraordinary set for the end of the film where Killian faces the sun bursting into the bomb chamber. They built this huge rig of scaffolding with lights on it. It looked like a U2 concert. It was incredible. <laughs> and they put it on wheels and pushed it down the room towards him. This huge thundering thing. And it gave him a sense of what it would be like to be out there. Damn. Yeah, yeah
3: I wonder what the what the wattage is on that. <laughs>
0: I don't have numbers for it's it, but I'm sure man, it was pretty it fucking like high.
3: That. Because we were... Uh... We were talking about wattage a few episodes ago, I think, right? Yeah, when that we were talking were about First the Man, then. we were saying yeah. that
0: they had a 200,000 watt light to simulate oh the God. sun. At the distance, it would be from the surface of the moon. Uh, and the, the light was so powerful, it was uh, sunburning people on set. Oh, right. Yeah. They were like afraid it was going to blow fuses and stuff. <laughs> yeah, which it did. It did blow yeah. a couple times. Yeah. So Mark Strong initially had to go through five hours of makeup every day in order to become Pinbacker. As the production continued, they were able to cut that time down by half because they got much better at doing it. Um, In order to uh, shoot the sort of strange effect uh, that obscures him, um, mentioned already that that was created in camera... And the way that they did this was that Boyle and Kutchler used this like dual camera system in which one camera is shooting directly at uh, Mark Strong but through a uh, a two way mirror, and then hmm. another camera on the other on the other side of the mirror is essentially shooting the reflection in the mirror, and then when you flop that reflection, um, you essentially have two captures of the same moment, but. Uh, they were manipulating the uh, camera that was shooting into the mirror. They were using um, huh. a uh, they were using a special uh, lens that they could uh, do these like stretching and diluting effects on, oh. and then combine the two images together in post production. And it was a fully, quote, organic process where basically the, the camera operator on that second camera is sort of just making all the decisions as to when to uh, use the, the effect of that lens. And so no two takes of pinbacker are ever the same which wow. then which then also means that if they wanted to they could take the um like the diluting effect from one take and mass it over the um standard shot from another take and you would get this like very intense dissonance if they wanted.
3: Huh. Wow. So they're using in-camera effects to create Yeah, it's essentially
0: this, like... a, a diopter uh shooting yeah. into a, a lens with a diopter shooting into a reflection. Um Weird. Yeah. I've never heard of this technique used before, but that Me
3: explains neither. why his presence on screen is so like disorienting. Yeah, incredibly they're, they're, jarring. They're also using this really compelling editing
0: technique mm-hmm.
3: uh, where they're they're using like freeze frames. Yeah, basically. they're intercutting like,
0: just like you know, a, a, like a half second hold on like a frozen right. frozen still. Yeah.
3: So, like at the end of an edit, like at at the end of a clip the clip will simply stop and, but the audio will continue. Yeah. So it, it has the effect of, of like, you're thinking like you're streaming TV just stopped. <laughs> it's like you're thinking like, <laughs> yeah, your connection the is, is bad or something. Yeah. And I mean, I think your connection being bad is, is probably the best way to describe it of like this, this presence, this, this entity's connection to like our, you know, mode of perception is, is, uh, you know, disabled like there there is some disconnect happening between the way we uh, are able to observe him in the way that he actually is operating yeah so he's much so time. that he's out of yeah. space you know and as an editor like i'm so compelled by this this choice to to use these stops um it like you if you put a freeze frame at an end of a clip and then the next clip starts what you're doing to your audience is kind of putting like this strange punctuation there yeah. where like you know you're sitting on the period for too long and it's a we're perfect so way u- of phrasing it yeah we're so used to seeing like complete thoughts in our edits where it's like you know shot 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 and then maybe a pause and then shot period like it, you know that that's it that is the language of of visual storytelling so when you hold too long you know mid thought it just is like a, it's like a destructive force to your eyes. Like what the, yeah. f- like like uh, how do I read this? Well, I'm not used to that as you know in our in our visual language. And I always always love when the edits are like creating the monster. Like when when the uh, you know the power yeah. of the monster is created through the the art of editing. That's so compelling to me.
0: It's kind of the ultimate sort of like shit. practical effect, right? yeah you know, and we've been we've been talking a lot over the course of this series i think for good reason um moments in these films where like just the basic tools of filmmaking become yeah. the ultimate sort of storytelling device like in in the O2 Solaris where he just briefly switches between subjective and objective mm-hmm. camera views mm-hmm. and it th- gives you the entire theme of the film or uh you know something like First Man where they're changing you know um they're tr- they're changing production format and it and it gives you thematic you know yeah. notions and it's so cool you're right like they they're holding on the punctuation here
3: yeah and where our like eyes and where our uh like the effects and special effects um like what they what what those things can't achieve i think when you have like mythic level like beings and and things that are like unfathomable in your films like you can only do so much with like the c g i so like where yeah. those those limitations are, I think you can use like the language of cinema to to uh, to break in and, and and to fill in those blanks and another perfect example is like the end of 2001 like we reach this space that is inexplicable yeah um, from what we know about like reality, if we are to ever like cross you know dimensional thresholds or you know uh, interact with extraterrestrial beings. Um, it's going to be things that we truly cannot imagine. And how do you put something unimaginable on screen? I mean, you you just can't. You can't create something that we have never seen before. I mean, pretty much to an extent, like you can never create like a film alien that is going to be truly, you know, novel, you know? Right. And so I love when filmmakers are always using the cin- the, the language of cinema to like, to fill in, that blank i mean david lynch does it all the time with like right. you know you can dilate time with with editing and, and yeah. that will give us something we've not seen before something that we can't fully understand and yeah. that works yeah, yeah. and i love that yeah. shit
0: i mean it's no it's perfectly said um which is part of why it's going to be exciting to cover uh nolan uh soon because oh, i feel yeah. like so many of his films uh do that and then feel as though they are like self-reflexively about filmmaking and storytelling yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. so all in all the makeup on pinbacker is comprised of 47 individual pieces and this is essentially like it's just a full-on skin suit um you know where it's just like a second layer of skin that's going over him every day and because it is so thin and fragile in order to like maximize the realism it is destroyed basically every time he takes it off so they have to that's <laughs> that's why the process takes so long it's because they have to start from scratch more or less every time they're doing it wow, yeah, and in order to get the like a barefoot effect of him being able to like walk around like fully naked, his feet are actually um ballet shoes that have been modified with like the latex and the the, the, <laughs> the, the like nasty gross looking skin stuff
3: so he's just this like naked uh being of
0: of of pure uh, uh nuclear radiation (laughs) i mean they're saying in the behind the scenes that like the way they've designed him and you don't really fully see it ever but the no which i like which i do like yeah i don't um, want to see the full thing it's much scarier not to see the full thing Mm -hmm. just to be like this guy is so horrifying you can't look at him yeah um which again is achieved through the visual language um the uh the design the makeup designers are basically like yeah we're basically looking at it as though like He's caught fire and then healed and then caught fire and then healed and then caught fire and then, hmm. then healed. So his skin is burned and reburned and reburned, and everything's just sort of fusing together and sealing itself up. Um, <sighs> so you can see that there's like bits of his clothing like permanently like melted into his skin and his skin itself is like melted into itself in like many horrible and disgusting ways.
3: Yeah. Wow. Uh, I guess we, we, ha- we meet a similar... Uh, demon or, or space ghost in 2010 the year we make contact and when, <laughs> when we finally see uh kia delia, Kier D'Elia. Again. yeah
0: except he's a friendly one <laughs> he's he's casper the friendly space ghost yeah yeah so during production boyle feels a little bit out of his comfort zone due to the amount of cg involved in making the film boyle said i tried to keep it visual because some of the ideas in the film are very hard to talk about But when we were making Sunshine, which involved a lot of post-production special effects, my responsibility to the actors was to describe to them what they would be seeing. I was brought up in a religious environment, and so my natural tendency was to lapse into descriptions which were broadly creationist. I'd be saying things like, kneel before the source of all creation, bow down before the source of all life. And even Alex, who is quite an aggressive atheist, has the same cultural instinct in the language that he uses.
3: Yeah, I mean, he's he's kind of reiterating a lot of what we were just talking about. about yeah. These, uh, the visual language that is required when you're dealing with something as unimaginably powerful as the sun.
0: Yeah. And Boyle added, you know, the modern kind of taste is to say, oh, we don't do CG. We'll try to just do it all for real. But with a film like this, it's not even a question of that. You've got to embrace what's wonderful about CG.
3: Yeah. I think we have reached the point in this podcast where like we we're we're very pro CG these days. <laughs> I think
0: I mean you you have to be. Yeah. You know, if if you want to be able to expand filmmaking into the realm of like pure imagination, then you need yeah. to be able to have access to tools that allow you to do that.
3: There's nothing inherently wrong with computer generated you know filmmaking tools and it, they've done so much for the industry yeah and will continue to change you know the landscape for years to come
0: absolutely rather than using several vfx companies uh which is what often happens in in during post-production uh boyle stuck to using moving picture co a london-based company for almost all of the film's 750 vfx shots Boyle's reasoning for this was that he could maintain a higher level of quality control over the shots. And while this increased the quality of the shots, it did slow down the post-production time, um, which is, you know, normally that's why you split the work up amongst a number of sure, sure. studios is that they can all be working concurrently. Um, but here it means that he can get a higher level of consistency.
3: Hmm. I wonder what the amount of uh, of pressure and, and, you know, and strain that put on that specific company rather than dispersing it through several
0: I'm sure that as as is the case with uh with every VFX company it was yeah. uh it was a ton of work and and very unpleasant yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and they said that one of the hardest things to do was to get the scale of the sun uh correct you know um they were talking on the the behind the scenes saying that the the values they were inputting in terms of the the size and depth and breadth of the sun and the you know the the amount of uh flaring and things like this they're talking about how it it's expelling these uh these like these solar winds and these solar yeah, rays these flares and, and everything yeah and, and all of the the numerical values for the size and scale of those things were all so abstract that they had a hard time making visualizations that felt a grounded in reality or b um that like like were able to like properly capture like its majesty, you know? And so they were, they were having, they, was, they was, had like some tests where it's just looking like way too small. It just looks like a ball of light. And mm-hmm. there are other times where it's just like, I don't know how to comprehend this. <laughs> I mean, you can't really,
3: uh, anytime if they show it, it's just simply the whole screen is like, yeah, orange or
0: white. <laughs> I mean, I, I really love show. when they have, um, and again, I hope this isn't stealing your scene, Um, but I love the moment where they have um Mercury, you know, appearing to glide across the surface of the sun, yeah. and you feel the scale of the planet Mercury in right. contrast with the sun, and it's just this wild. It's like a moment. speck.
3: Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah.
0: yeah. So the score for this film, which is uh, has become iconic over the years, was done by Underworld and John Murphy. Um, Murphy is a, a great composer, and he he did the score for uh, for Twenty Eight Days Later, uh, which is also an iconic score. Another one of those scores where. Uh, it's it's used as temp track in plenty of films, and then they just leave it in there. Um, <laughs> but this is done by Underworld and John Murphy, and, and Boyle had worked with Underworld before because they provided the song "Born Slippy" from the end of the film uh, Train Spotting, uh, which is an iconic song uh, in and of itself.
3: <laughs> yeah the the composition, uh, what is it, Adagio for Adagio in D Adagio. minor. Adagio in D minor has become you would you would uh, you would know it if you heard it should we should we do the list
0: of all the it's like the video trailer song right (laughs) there's a list of all the places that it's been used it's so long oh my god okay so it was used in oh my god yeah look at this yeah there's no way we
3: can list all of these
0: yeah we'll name some we'll we'll name some big ones it's in top gun maverick ready player one the adjustment bureau x-men days of future past x-men origins wolverine it's in multiple episodes of the walking dead it's in the lovely bones the movie kick-ass star trek the trailer for star trek into darkness um a tv spot for the film gravity
3: Mm -hmm.
0: and uh and lastly yes it is in uh both wonder woman and wonder woman 1984
3: (laughs) so funny when it's used twice in the same franchise
0: yeah I mean, it is It's good song. It is so good. I mean, it's an amazing soundtrack album as well. Yeah. You know, it's it's just, it's so good.
3: Very moving composition at
0: Adagio. Very moving. Fox Searchlight rescheduled the film's release date twice. Initially, the film was planned to come out in October of 2006, but is delayed due to production and post-production issues. And additionally, the film went $5 million over budget. The film had uh, marketing issues uh, because no one could figure out how uh, to advertise a film that seemingly fit into several genres. Yeah, yeah, similar to like the O2 Solaris they
3: have, and and First Man as well. It's like yeah. how do you market these things?
0: I true, yeah. I mean, I'm not a marketer, but I feel like maybe just market what the film actually is instead of what yeah. you think will fill the main seats. <laughs> Fox Searchlight's head of distribution said, the question we had internally is, can you release a 2001 in 2007? We think there is an audience, but we don't want to minimize the challenges. <laughs> and Boyle says, it's kind of a space mission movie. It's got the rules of sci-fi and has a mystery attached to it. There's a mission that's failed. Nobody knows what's going to happen to the crew. Uh, and they, they get to the meet the source of all life in the universe. That has got to be worth 10 or 12 bucks or whatever it is you guys pay. Yeah, good point.
3: Why yeah. isn't that enough? Why can't that be the advertising? <laughs>
0: yeah. Sunshine was released domestically on July 20th, 2007. On an estimated budget of $40 million, the film brought in $3.6 million domestically and $34.8 million worldwide, making it a flop at the box office. The film received relatively positive critical response, with critics praising the visuals, the performances, and the themes of the film. However... Some critics took issue with the third act, including noted coward Roger Ebert. So anyway, younger girls won't like the movie unless they know what's going to happen under an automobile hood. Younger boys won't like it because the only thing that's possibly going to blow up real good is the sun. But science fiction fans would like it, and also brainiacs, and those who sometimes look at the sky and think, man, there's a lot going on up there, and we can't even define precisely what a soliton is. (laughs) Would you describe yourself as a brainiac? I wouldn't describe myself as a brainiac. No. Mm. Um, if anything, it is, uh, it is the emotional stuff in this film that works for me um, and, and makes it hold such a place in my, uh, in, in my, I don't know, my library of favorites, I guess. Um, I, I will say, however, brainiac, you think I'm a bit of a brainiac? Yeah, I think I would describe you as a brainiac. All right, fine. I'm a brainiac. I'm going to kill Superman. Um, I just want to point out that, uh, I did in fact see this film in a movie theater. You did? I did. I was, I, I went to see this, uh, at the theater when it, when it released, I saw it at the AMC Lincoln square. Um, Uh, yeah. I took the, I took the bus in from, from New Jersey with, uh, with friend of the show, Jasper Bosch, uh, (laughs) who now works at IFC. And, uh, yeah, I think we were both boil heads and, uh, Jasper throughout my life, especially my 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 you know early twenties and late teen years getting into films, uh was was very instrumental in being like Adam, there's this new film, it's only playing in New York, we gotta go and see it. And uh <laughs> and that was one of them. So thank you to Jasper.
3: I wonder if seeing it at Lincoln Center, uh, at that point in your life also adds to your love of this film, because you see anything at that place
0: on the right night, and it will change your <laughs> Your perception of it right yeah i mean i think we went enhance on like a, your perception I guess. yeah i think we went on like a saturday morning or something but like yes you know making it into such like a mission like we took the bus we yeah. you know we, yeah. we, we you know we went to the movies and then we took the bus home you know it, like it felt like a yeah not that, like taking the bus is difficult but like it's like an hour-long bus ride sure yeah <laughs> you
3: you uh you traveled to the far side of the sun to see this movie.
0: Exactly. And it changed um, your life. I bathed in uh, I bathed in its golden lights. I am
1: Tim Becker Commander of the Ichillus One. We have abandoned our mission. Our star is dying! All our silence, all our hopes, our, our dreams are foolish. In the face of this, we are dust, nothing more. And truth is dust. For us to die, it is not our place to challenge God.
2: Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, nationwide at Costco or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code Wondery at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code Wondery at liquidiv.com.
0: Whose turn is it this week? I believe it is my turn. Um, okay. Because you won't. Yeah, you, you, go, you go on the first film of the double feature. I go on the second. So. Ah, okay. That's a good good that's, logic That's there. how it's been going uh, so far. So, um,
3: so bathe in the lights, Adam. I will. Tell us where this film hits you the hardest.
0: I will. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, you've just called me a brainiac. Um, <laughs> brainiac, I think, Adam. I think very often... Um, and we've been talking about this this notion of like scientific accuracy versus Mm -hmm. emotional truth throughout the run of this episode and and to lend credence to your your brainiac uh you know notion here i I do think i I normally approach these scene explorations we do um pardon my pretension as a bit of a cinema scientist trying to Mm. sort of crack the uh the double helix code of the film and uh that isn't the case this week. This week I really am here to just talk about the, the emotional truth um, ah. and a kind of universal truth, as it were. Um, there are very few of these, these, these universal truths, but the, the one thing that really unites all human beings is the certainty that one day each and every one of us is going to die. <laughs> uh, and beyond that, the awareness of that certainty. Yes. You know, however, I think what makes all of us unique is how we cope with that truth, um, how we choose to spend the time available to us. Uh, Some people avoid thinking about this truth at all costs. Some people become obsessed with it. Uh, Some search for meaning in it. Uh, And a select few find a a healthy way to balance their understanding of it. Um, If I ever meet one of them, I'll let you know. Um, The crew of the Icarus 2, they are hurtling towards the sun. They have chosen to spend their time trying to create more time for everyone else on planet Earth. It's the second and final attempt for the Earth to save itself. And because the Icarus 2 is flying in the shadow of the Icarus 1, a mission that has failed for no understandable or explainable reason, there is no guarantee of success. And if anything, plenty of evidence of certain failure. Uh, that they may not even be able to deliver their solar bomb, uh, but even if they do, they are unlikely to return. Uh in that sense from the moment this crew leaves earth they are already dead and mm-hmm. sun sunshine to me then becomes a a meditation on on that understanding on on the knowledge of one's own destiny and specifically on facing it um which leads me to think about um like stoic philosophy and and how it looks mm-hmm. at death um got some some quotes here for you um So Epictetus, uh, he says, uh, I cannot escape death, but at least I can escape the fear of it. And I think that is something that uh, looms large over this film. Uh, Mm -hmm. This notion that uh, they all have to come to terms with the end of their lives in one way or another. Um, And not just their own personal demise, but the potential demise of all of humanity in itself. Yeah. And and we see the reactions to that, uh, you know, in a range of ways. You know, all the way from, you know, Pinback, essentially going insane and becoming a murderer, and uh, and Trey, who who takes his own life, um, because in this film, it is the sun itself. It is this kind of ever-present, uh, always screaming, uh, looming <laughs> specter of death that they. They aren't just having to face it, but uh, they have to push towards it. It's this very strange uh, experience that all these people are having, where they have to push forward towards their own death in order to complete this mission. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately, even though there are plenty of scenes that touch on this, um, in particular, and, and again, stop me if this is yours because I don't want to steal the quote from mm-hmm. you. This isn't my scene, but like my favorite one of these exchanges throughout the film is is the one where uh where Casey says to 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 Kappa, it's different being afraid that you won't make it back home than knowing mm-hmm. that you won't. We're going to die out here. Mm-hmm. Um and they talk about, you know, the the bomb uh, et cetera and and kappa eventually says i think it'll be beautiful so i'm not scared and i i love all of these little exchanges but the one that really does it for me is uh the moment or the scene that comes around 39 minutes into the film and this is after they have deviated from the original mission mm-hmm. and trey has messed up the solar shield calculations and so they need to send canada and kappa out onto the shield to repair it and the scene opens with, uh, with these three really striking shots. Uh, the sun kind of peeks over the edge of the solar shield and you hear the first notes of Adagio in D minor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cut to Kaneda in his spacesuit observing this and, and kind of rising up in zero G. And then we see the reflection of this view of the sun on his visor and he looks out at it. And you know in his eyes that it is over, that he knows it is yeah. over. And he and he yeah. tells Kappa to leave. And we see this amazing shot of their bodies kind of floating past each other. One of them returning to safety and one of them pushing forward. The music grows, the camera sweeps over the solar shield, revealing this very stark contrast between the void and the sun. Hmm. And all of this is intercut with the now growing fire uh, inside the oxygen garden destroying their chance of future kappa makes it to the edge of the shield and sees the sun coming for them canada finishes the job uh and as he is doing so Serle, who we've seen already kind of uh praying uh, uh to the sun mm-hmm. uh he he screams over the radio what do, what do you see yeah yeah and uh and then the wave comes and envelops him you know he becomes pure light um and and Kappa just makes it back in time to uh to save himself we see the faces of the crew as they realize what's happened the the empty burned out husk of the oxygen garden and finally this this shot of the sun hanging there in the void um and it's that moment right in there where Kaneda, even though it, you know it the, the film kind of plays with you for a second in the editing where you think like could he make it back like is he choosing not to make it back and you're not sure if if that is the case that like maybe he could have done but but regardless whether or not he could have done he definitively chooses not to he he chooses to stay there and and stare into the heart of the sun and and face that destiny and when it comes for him he doesn't share it with them you know Searle is asking him for some some understanding of of what is happening in the face of god as it were as he screams at you and you scream back at him and uh and canada refuses because it's his destiny and he's facing it alone even if it is even if he is doing it for them mm-hmm. this moment is is for him and for me it just it just has a kind of you know a magic feeling to it um and it is the kind of moment that feels like what this film was designed around you know eventually we're going to have to put a person out into the void in their spacesuit and have them stare down the sun until it vaporizes them that is what a film called sunshine requires and i just uh yeah it, it for me it's just the most powerful powerful moment in the film um absolutely uh brings a tear to my eye and uh and i love it
3: I'm not the one Of course i love that scene too it's very touching and moving you know his sacrifice there and there is this this quality of like what what does he see like what you know this mystery what is it contained in this sun's power that they're trying to see trying to find is there something is there some knowledge we can
0: gain from it you know right and um there's there's that other bit of dialogue that um that Saul gives like pretty early on in the film when they're having dinner and he's talking about like sensory deprivation tests and how in dark you you float in darkness because you and the darkness are distinct from each other because mm-hmm. darkness is the absence of something it's a vacuum but total light envelops you it becomes right. you and so when you're watching this scene you're like you've you've kind of subtly been primed for this notion that um right, right. that like the sun kind of is it, it like it has it lives within you it has given you life and now it is it is becoming you and you are becoming it and like perhaps that's what's happening in this moment is that it's some kind of ascension
3: yeah and they're uh, they're often telling each other that like we all come from stardust you know right and we're going to go back to that it all really i guess does come down to the sun in the end (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'm reminded of that moment um i'm reminded of distant family members we have um one of them she was getting very old and uh living by herself and so she lived with an aide and the aide uh when she eventually died the aide told us and and you know and their immediate family that the moment that this woman died uh she saw something and said oh my god and then she died oh god <laughs> and like that that has stuck with me for so many years i always think about that like what did she see what that, did she that, see that she said oh my god my god full you know? of stars <laughs> yeah right it's so close <laughs> to that
0: yeah i hope a... those are my last words And <laughs> <laughs> reminds me I mean, of this moment <laughs> yeah i mean yeah and, and it and it all makes me think of this sort of of this of the stoics and you know mm-hmm. i uh I take great, as someone who has like a pretty severe death anxiety, mm-hmm. I, I take great comfort in in some of that stuff. Um, there's this quote by Marcus Aurelius that I'll, I'll kind of finish this off with. Um, Brief is a man's life and small the nook of the earth where he lives. Brief too is the longest posthumous fame buoyed only by a succession of poor human beings who will very soon die and know little of themselves, much less of someone who died long ago.
3: Yeah, I mean the thing about uh being eclipsed by the sun and and dying is that yeah. all you know all of consciousness stops but also all the pain and suffering stops, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, we and don't, don't know if
0: if all of consciousness stops. I assume it does. That's true. Or if that's all the part, pain and suffering that's, stops. That's, <laughs> right. You know, part part of my uh part of where my death anxiety comes from is my assumption that consciousness ends, you know. Yeah, um, sure
3: but also when it ends all the suffering of being alive ends and right i think that's something that this film is contending with too
0: yeah uh especially when you see characters like trey who are sort of like i fucked up it's human to fuck up and then you're kind of sitting there watching the film and being like this is absolutely the most stress that any one person could possibly be under is being in the crew of this mission yeah yeah where was your head at
3: you know, it's a similar moment, actually. It's not the same moment. Um, but we've already talked about it a lot. When when uh Cliff Curtis, uh Dr. Cyril, is in that observation room just mm-hmm. staring at staring at the sun and he's he's raising the the brightness level, the, the filter from two percent to three point one percent. That is the moment that has you know stayed like has, has, has been stuck in my shoe for all these years with this movie. It's just been kicking around. Like I'm very compelled by the ending and that, that weird liminal space in the bomb. I, that is so mm-hmm. mysterious and, and, and fun to me and, and resonant, I think there's something very mysterious about it. And we yeah. talked about the editing too, that, that also really inspires me as you know, in storytelling. Um, But just this very basic and simple notion of this man gazing upon like the power of the sun. This, it, it really. There's something like just mystical about it. Some, yeah. Some I don't know. Like, so the sun. I was. I was doing some research. The sun. If you. If you were to measure it in wattage, like you know a normal light bulb is like somewhere between like 25 to 100 watts and like an led can go up to like 18 watts or something around there
0: yeah well, you're talking about like household household yeah, bulbs, sure, right sure. yeah it's like 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 yeah like but your your most common like standard household bulb is like mm-hmm. a 40 to 60 watt like sure. incandescent tungsten light and then the led equivalent i i believe is uh Depending on the brand you're buying from, is like anywhere as low as like three watts, and usually at an absolute maximum like twenty for a household.
3: Yeah. So, so that's you know, so sit with just like maybe like twenty watts. It's like right in the mid range or thirty watts. The sun is three point eight times ten to the twenty sixth. Oh my god. So, so I will read this for effect. So that that is three hundred eighty two, and then. 0. watts. Oh my god! The power of
0: thirty-eight. So essentially, thirty-eight with like twenty-four zeros in the end. Uh, twenty-six. I think twenty-six. Yeah. Sorry, I miscounted.
3: I think that's what it is. It's ten to the twenty-six. So. Um and it takes between ten thousand and seven uh, and one hundred seventy thousand years for that light to travel from its core and escape into space uh wow so <laughs> it's just you know it it's a it's a religious level of power that yeah is also just such a basic scientific phenomenon that we have known like for certain from like the start of human existence because we can just see it, you know? Mm-hmm. And this film is tasked with like reconciling, and we've talked about this already, that, you know, reconciling the mythology of that power and and with the, the, the scientific reality that it exists and that it's going to explode and like, you know, they need to send something in it to wake it up. And uh, we've already also addressed, you know, how... Uh, confining the inside of the spaceship is to like the vastness of whenever they they reach the exterior and when Mm -hmm. they try to portray this the size of the sun and this film is stuck between all of these you know contrasting uh, notions I guess these opposing notions and in moments like this I think with just Cyril looking at it and, and trying to maybe absorb its power or even at the very least, just trying to grasp like the, the scale of its power. Yeah. You know, at 3.1%, it's so unbearably powerful that it almost destroys his retinas and, you know, probably his brain.
0: I mean, it instantly sunburns him. Like for the rest of the movie, he's like peeling skin off of his face. Yeah.
3: I think it's, it's just a very astonishing moment yeah. and it, and, and it's brilliant in its simplicity and, and in the visual language too, you know, the cuts from him staring in silence to the exterior of the
0: sun being so loud and powerful and bright, you know. I, I, I love the, I, I love that this film doesn't do the, the silence in the void thing. Like I, yeah. I, I love that it gives the sun a sound and the sound is so violent. Yeah, you know like it it just sounds like something something otherworldly screaming at you
3: yeah and having i mean there's just something so simple and brilliant of this of this notion that like i am staring at like god but it sounds like hell like right you know like it and looks, looks, like, like it's, looks like hell looks like hell but all, it all is, the descriptions of hell to are heaven this? yeah yeah It is such a contradictory force of nature.
1: Hey, Chris? Yes, doctor Searle. Please refilter the observation portal. Filter up or down,
2: doctor Searle. Down.
1: Oh, Chris. How close is this to full brightness?
2: At this distance of 36 million miles, you are observing the sun at 2% of full brightness.
1: 2%? Can you show me 4%?
2: 4% would result in irreversible damage to your retinas. percent
3: for a period of not longer than 30 seconds i'm gonna reset the filter
2: to 3.1 percent
0: i mean i i feel like that's such a great pick for, for a scene also just because like that's that's like what that's like it, that's just what the film is it's just contending with the sun you know yeah. <laughs> and it's a thing and it's a thing that like we, we you know we kind of do but don't really do you know like like as you say like like we all we all kind of get that the sun is there but but we don't necessarily we're not necessarily feeling that right you know yeah. all day every day even um, though
3: it is a a very active and like you know it, it is such a threat to our well-being yeah. so much that like if you look at it for a little bit like it's going to fuck you up. Yeah. <laughs> and it's in space. I mean <laughs> and it powers our solar system. It it's a crazy fucking thing. Not to mention like when it gets dark, we see th- we see the suns of, you know, <laughs> millions of other galaxies. Uh yeah, uh, it's it's stuff that is really difficult to kind of yeah, as you say, difficult to contend with as a human yeah. being. I think this film does a pretty damn good job of it, and I'm realizing now how much more complicated the sun is <laughs> than the moon, because
0: <laughs> right. we were just the moon on the is moon, a big old you know? rock that, that yeah. floats there, and we can go moon's, there if we want to.
3: The moon's kind of dumb; it's, it's just like this <laughs> like dead gray space. It's easy; like we get it. There's no oceans. There's no you know. There's there's nothing. It's just this big dumb. But rock. it
0: but it controls the um the the pull of the moon controls the tides so it is a vital That's part true. of That's uh, true. It, it does have power that we must contend with um it just feels lesser so when compared to the sun you know yeah. which uh which is at the center of our of our solar system um the the other things i love about the scene you have chosen is that number one it perfectly sets up uh what's going to happen to so like you yeah. know when he takes a seat in that Uh, second sun chamber on the Icarus one uh, amongst the sort of Pompeii bodies of the old crew and like puts his sunglasses on it feels so right yeah it feels right that this is how he would die um and beyond that it sets up Pinbacker like I fully understand that like there is a man who is going to show up later who is the way he is because I have seen the 3.1 percent effect on searle you know right
3: and i kind of uh i kind of buy it too i mean yeah like i so much that i almost don't really even feel that bad for searle because like i kind of want to do that i i, <laughs> I, I want to like sit there and see what that experience is like because it will truly be like nothing else you I, know imaginable
0: i feel the same way like yeah. I, mean, I don't, I don't <laughs> want to die i don't want to get no. like melted by the sun but like i like as he is screaming at, at like Canada, like what do you see? Like, I want to know what he sees, and I get why he looks into it. Yeah. You know, it it, it, it all makes perfect sense for sense to me. Um yeah, that's
3: in the writing, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's that, in that's the Garland's yeah. brilliance of like, yeah. yeah, all humans on a basic level just wanna like be you just absorbed stare into, into the, the sun. sun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to like, you know, the 1970s uh Christopher Reeves, Superman, and that that wonderful scene of him, you know, drifting into space and mm-hmm. And deriving his power from the sun, as as we all kind of do, you know? Right. Like when you're stuck inside for days on end in the winter, in the pandemic, and then you, you go outside and the sun is finally out, you feel it on your skin. It's just like a natural thing, right. a natural phenomenon that we have been experiencing as humans from the start of our existence. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. yeah.
3: That primal shit that's in this movie.
0: Yeah. It is a very primal film. Um, yeah. And again, it's why Pinbacker works because he's like the most primal, you know, human character sure. um, in yeah. the film. I love, you know, we haven't talked about any of his actual lines of dialogue. He doesn't say very much, but <laughs> the things he says are, uh, I mean, it's just demented, but like also completely earned, you know. <laughs> when when he first meets uh, Kappa, he says, are you an angel? Because he has been for seven years you know uh talking to god and is waiting to be the last you know person left alive at the end of time like that's what he thinks he's doing you know
3: (laughs) and uh, i mean ostensibly i don't know communicating with the sun through some like weird nuclear uh, you know
0: (laughs) i mean i don't think he's communicating with the sun i think he's gone insane but i love we don't know though we don't I know mean, what we this has, know.
3: what this gave to him this this power uh yeah i can totally buy that he's he's gained some sort of you know
0: for 7 years i sat alone and talked to god and he told me to bring us all to heaven like he's trying to actively stop this mission because he has become convinced by his time with the sun that it is the it is, that humanity should end now like <laughs> Well, that's the other thing.
3: The ship is called Icarus, and you know they got to right. clip Icarus's wings, like right. We and this this notion that like you can't bomb the sun, like you can't <laughs> reverse the natural order of all of existence. Like the sun is all powerful; it makes those decisions for us. This idea that humans can like get in there and fuck shit up with their with their technology uh i i i do like the reading of this film of like the sun itself being like no you you can't do that like that's against the rules
0: (laughs) i like that reading in a sort of like sci-fi sense where i'm like watching this and i'm like i've personified the sun and the sun has told me no it's time to die i that's that works for me as a reading where i get very hung up and afraid of that reading is when one tries to (laughs) um overlay it onto present day because that's how you just end up with sort of like bullshit you know accelerationism sort of like you know like that's true we should all just nuke each other because it's time you know right and that like global
3: warming is a natural order of things right like like,
0: god God wants us to die and so we should let the sea level rise and you know we should allow the total suffering of mankind like i'm staunchly sort of against that um yeah, as a as a line of thinking and this sort of defeatist thing, and it's why I like the crew of the Icarus so much, and what they mm-hmm. are trying to do is they are looking at the natural world dying around them, and they are saying, "Not today." <laughs> but also, uh, our sheer existence—like
3: we are a very destructive force. Like we're terrible. Yes, like we have. We, do- we
0: have. This is the chaos that we have wrought.
3: Yeah, but even even in the things that aren't, you know you know, even if we get away from like carbon emissions and stuff, just like humans are just like destructive forces. Yeah. We, we are destructive creatures. Like the way that we, we live and we nest in everything. It's like by harnessing the natural, you know, uh, the, the natural splendor of the earth, we just destroy for our own means. And I am, I'm fascinated by the idea of like getting to this point of like, you know, of course, I don't agree that like the sea levels must rise. But getting to this extreme point of humans being like, and now we are going to like fuck with God. We're going to fuck with the sun <laughs> and the sun being like, you've reached a point too far, my
0: friend. Like, yeah. <laughs> although they do succeed in the end. So they do. They do succeed. Yeah. Uh, eight minutes passes and the, uh, the, the light on Earth is a little bit brighter. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. day. And that's how we know that uh, the Kappa has succeeded
3: right until it gets too bright and uh we open up the ozone again and everything starts over right. <laughs> right? I mean,
0: yeah yeah sunshine and too what a picture i just love this film it's so good yeah
3: it really it's a special one we're we're hitting a bunch of them this in this series and yes just hit after hit a lot of under underappreciated hits
0: yes this is one of them for sure all right anything else to add no i'm going to kill the sun i have one last point that i forgot to bring up earlier which is just that um obviously all of the actors in this film are uh very good looking people Mm-hmm. but i love that they are not made up to be good looking yeah like i love terrible that, i love that they seemingly have no makeup on and <laughs> if anything have been all made to look a little bit worse uh, yes it sells the reality of this and the you know the stress they're all under in such a compelling way i wholeheartedly agree yeah Thanks, everyone, for listening. We want to hear from you. Tell us about your Eye of the Duck scenes. You can find us on all social media at Eye of the Duck Pod. Email us at contact at eyeoftheduckpod.com. If you'd like to join the conversation about movies, movie scenes, and all things film, find an invite link to Eye of the Discord in our show notes. You
3: can find me on Twitter at Dominic Nero or on my website at domnero.com.
0: And you can find me on social media at AdamVol, that's V-O-L-E. And you can watch my films online at adamvolerich.com. That's V-O-L-E-R-I-C-H. The
3: main soundtrack in our episode intro is the recording of Strauss's On the Beautiful Danube that's heard in 2001, A Space Odyssey. The audio cues are pulled from various space movies that we cover in this series. The music you're hearing right now is the recording of Cachetorian's Gay and A Ballet Suite, also from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Our logo was designed by Francesca Volrich. You can purchase her work at francescavolrich.com slash shop. This episode was edited by Eric Gunnison. Thanks, Eric. Special thanks
0: to Parth Marate for providing research on this episode. Thanks, Parth. Next week, Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity, which you can stream with a subscription to HBO Max, DirecTV, or Cinemax. Or you can rent or buy from your favorite video-on-demand platform. And as of the date of this recording, it is cheapest to purchase at 7 dollars from Apple TV, Amazon, or Google Play. And the next time you watch a movie, remember to keep your eye on The Duck.
2: My god, it's full of stars.
3: Hey prime members, you can listen to I the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
0: Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com/survey.
1: If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of the strange, dark and mysterious.